0: an outrage what we're doing. The nurses who treated coronavirus patients for months exposing themselves to this stuff, they know how natural immunity works. We stood in our apartment windows and cheered them as they came home from work. Yay, thanks for saving us. 20 months later, you're fired. Get the jab or you're gonna lose your job.
1: At the Brownstone Institute's inaugural conference, we sat down with Brownstone's founder and president, Jeffrey Tucker, to discuss his vision to create an intellectual sanctuary for free discussion and scientific inquiry.
0: Because we have got a ruling class that's not going to admit error, so that's when the lies began. And the lies have not stopped. We live in a world of
1: lies. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Before we start, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, American Hartford Gold. As you may have heard, American Thought Leaders was demonetized by YouTube, and after many months, their rather opaque appeals process has really led nowhere. Yet there are still companies like American Hartford Gold that value freedom of speech and honest discourse, and are sponsoring shows like ours. With inflation on the rise, investing in gold is another option to diversify your assets. American Hartford Gold is a patriotic, family-owned company that not only sells precious metals right to your front door, they can help you deposit gold into a retirement account like an IRA or a 401k. They've got an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and right now they have a promotion where they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first order. You can just call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377, or you can text American to 65532. Thank you, American Hartford Gold, for sponsoring American Thought Leaders. Jeffrey Tucker, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for for having me. Well, you know, Jeffrey, we've just taken in a day of the Brownstone Institute. Inaugural conference, mm. some amazing speakers, some amazing, frankly, networking with people that uh, I think have rarely, many of them haven't even met each other in person before. That's right. It's kind of an important day, actually. When I, is it? It
0: it transpires. Well, it feels it feels important, you know. Yeah, and uh, it feels like maybe we're working towards a solution, and we're coming out of a crisis really unprecedented in our lifetime. Something nobody wanted to happen, and. And while it was happening, we almost couldn't believe it. And here we are 20, 21 months into this, and it's still going on. The U.S. is opening up. A lot of places around the world are closing down in in other ways. So the crisis is still with us intellectually, socially, culturally, politically. Crisis for science, a crisis for free speech, everything. We're asking all these big questions these days. You know, what is our relationship to each other? Are we just pathogenic disease vectors or... Are we going to give up the idea of human dignity entirely? Uh, are we going to surrender to the idea that, that there are some people who are destined to rule the world with the hand of science and the rest of us are just going to be subjugated and obey? Are we really going to do that? And if we do that, what does that mean to our ideals of like democracy and equality? We're all asking these questions. And uh, yeah, I hope that Brownstone can provide something like a forum. For discussing these things truthfully and honestly, coming to terms with the reality of what happened, um, maybe shine a light uh, of the solution, which I think one of our speakers said yesterday is all bound up with rediscovering the Enlightenment and the values that it meant. I, I, th- I think that's that's true. Um, but I'm also feeling as if Brownstone has a role as a as kind of a refuge or a salvific role or a sanctuary role for for the people that have been. Purged, and that's that's ongoing. I mean, like even as we speak, there are people who are losing their their positions, uh, losing their jobs uh, because of their refusal to acquiesce to this uh, biomedical s- state and its mandates. So yeah, Brownstones too little, too late, but at least we exist. And I, th- I think yesterday showed the possibility that we can do a lot of good.
1: You know at the beginning you you said, you know, the crisis and I you know even for some viewer maybe some of our newer viewers some imagine the crisis to be, you know, COVID, right? That's the crisis, isn't that the crisis? That's why we have to lock down. There's a, there's this massive crisis.
0: Yeah. Well, it was re- <laughs> yes. I understand that some people think this is the very first pathogen that the world has ever experienced. <laughs> but you know, I've, one of the things that I've, I've done since this whole thing began is read on the history of, of pathogenic uh, diseases, infectious diseases, and and um, and the way we responded to them in the old days, the Middle Ages. People thought that they were a miasma that you had to run away from, and that what that did is it created a kind of a caste system, a feudalistic system, or a class system, which the upper classes that could move away, and get away from the pathogen, uh, just forced it on everybody else who couldn't afford it. So We, we developed these sort of divisions in society. Uh, but as modernity um, progressed from the late Middle Ages onward after the end of the Black Death and, and the idea of modernity and progress began to dawn on people, we began to develop a different attitude towards infectious diseases uh, that was we we need freedom we need rights we need equality and we need progress despite the existence of pathogens we're going to forever do a deadly dance with these things and uh, we always have but the the burden of that of that deadly dance should be community wide it should be shared within the social structure by by everyone uh, as a community we need to come to terms with these things we're not going to divide society anymore into these Subgroups, And in the 20th century, we, we got especially good at this, right? So we've, we've, we had uh, disease outbreaks in the United States in, in 68, 69, 57 and 58. We had a polio problem in the early 40s. We had uh, 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 a parrot flu in 1929, and so on it goes. But gradually over the 20th century, we learned more about infectious diseases. We discovered the idea of herd immunity, very interesting discovery. And we learned that the, the way to deal with disease was not just, on one hand, dividing society according to the exposed and the unexposed, the clean and the unclean. We we didn't we didn't do that in the twentieth century. Something went wrong in twenty twenty where we 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 took a completely different uh, path, um, and it was even more extreme than just going medieval. It it was it was a very strange you know sort of scientific experiment that's been conducted on almost the whole of humanity. Nothing like this has ever been tried before. They treated us like lab rats. We were, our job from the middle of March onward was to behave as um, just parts in a, in a, in a machine like um, part of a computer model. You know, they, they modeled us and told us what to do. And to me it's all summed up in, in Deborah Burks's comment at the March 16th press conference in the White House and which she said, uh, what we want is for everyone to stay separate from each other. That was her statement. And this is coming from the White House. And people didn't think that was unusual? I mean, not in the whole history of humanity have we faced an order that everyone should stay separate from everyone else. I mean, this is a wild new experiment in, in social management uh, under the guise of disease mitigation, under the guise of virus control. And it didn 't work there's no evidence that it achieved anything in terms of mitigating uh, the out- bad outcomes from the disease, so the experiment failed, and we, we haven't <laughs> there's been very little public recognition of this, this is, we 've been slow to admit it. Uh, very few of the architects of this of this thing have ever well none of them i don 't think have come forward and said okay that was a, that was a huge mistake so we 're left now with this tremendous carnage, and it 's hard to know what the worst part of it is it's I guess for me, uh, the, the worst carnage is the demoralization that comes about from the realization that your rights and freedom can be taken away in an instant, and there's nothing you can do about it. The courts are not there for you. Uh, public health officials are cheering this on. Uh, you, you feel unempowered. I think this is why there's so much depression and and d- drug uh, overdoses and alcohol abuse and rise of obesity and ill health everywhere, just the sudden realization that you are not free, that your rights are not guaranteed, that all the things you used to believe in uh, may not be true anymore, that's a shock. The sudden transformation of the liturgy of life into a completely new uh, regime, uh, into a new protocol, uh, that you have to, you know, to which you must comply, whether it's masking or distancing, or how many people you can have in your home, whether you can even go to church, you know, and you, you go to a party and everybody calls you a, a super spreader. This is weird. This is a new world for us, and we have to ask ourselves whether we're willing to put up with this. Was this a good idea? And if not, what are we going to do about it in the future? So there is a crisis, and the crisis exists on many levels, uh, social, cultural, medical. But I think above all else, it's intellectual. We have to rethink, or think again about what kind of people we want to be, what kind of society we want to live in, and what are the rules under which we're going to live. Is it about the clean and unclean, the essential and unessential, elected, unelected, or are we going to recapture those values of democracy and equality and liberty that really did build modernity? That, I think is what we're dealing with right now. It's that fundamental, that fundamental. Many of us, our whole lives have thought about issues of economics and politics and philosophy and so on. They were parlor games for us in the past. You know, there were debates we had with our friends, uh, books we read, tests we take, um, things we talked about over cocktails. All of that is now real. It's the world in which we live right now. Everything we've ever worried about, all these issues that have have consumed me and you and many people we're now this is it this is our moment we have to act on our beliefs which means we have to decide what it is we believe and that that is really fundamental i think right now it's
1: fascinating and i think you know that what as you're speaking i mean i i i i i hear everything you're saying part of me mm-hmm. doesn't want to believe it yeah i know i know but and, and, and I, but I, I think a significant portion of society absolutely doesn't and might not even understand what you're saying here. I'm not sure about that. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, maybe if you lived in South Dakota. You know, well, they never shut down, really. Or Sweden yeah. or somewhere like that. You might think well, life's normal. Uh, but here's the problem. Uh, there are some places that, are, that opened up sooner than others, and they feel normal. I think Florida feels that way right now. But the effects of the lockdowns, with the supply chain breakages and and the chip shortages and the inflation that we're facing, uh, the debt crisis, this is going to affect everybody. All of it reminds me of a a statement written I think in 1923 by Ludwig von Mises, and I would think about this all the time because he says, because I've read it so many times in the past, but he says, when civilization is sweeping towards destruction, there is no safe space for everyone. Therefore, it is the obligation for, of everyone to throw himself into the intellectual struggle for freedom. This is 1923. When I, when I read that, I thought, that's a little bit over the top. Civilization sweeping to destruction? Come on, that's not really going to happen. Well, he was right. His world, Vienna, fell apart, right? It got consumed. He had to leave in 1934. That was a calamity, he was right, he was right. And of course we read about these things, we always think they're in the past. It's not gonna to happen to us. We've learned, we've learned from the past. We, we don't do that kind of thing anymore. We're above that, we're beyond that. The terrible thing uh, that we've discovered uh, in the last 20 months is that we are not beyond that. We are capable of that and worse. Different, but potentially worse. That's not a world I didn't want to believe. That, you know, I've always been like, had the attitude of a nineteenth-century liberal Whig. you know. I, I always, you know, they were that way too, you know. They, they believed that there's only progress coming. We, we've got the, we know how to make cool things. We, we know the prescription for peace and prosperity. You know, it's, it's trade, it's free association, free speech, ever greater uh, rounds of emancipation for everybody. We get better tools, and there's world's fairs, and life can only get good. And then World War One happens. It shattered everybody's dreams. It shattered everything. Everybody's assumptions about what the what the world was like. And I think that there's some ways in which 2020 and 2021 is kind of our World War One. In the sense that it's it's broken down everything we believed about ourselves. We believed that we had a constitution that protected us. I mean, I'm not sure. We thought it was there for us. We can read the Bill of Rights and see that we have freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And these, these things are surely baked into the institutional structures under which we live. How, I don't know, the courts, maybe it's just in culture, but we thought it was there and then truly it seems like we woke up practically overnight to a different world in which we're managed from the top by a tiny elite that's determining whether uh, I can go to church, uh, how many people I can have in my home, whether I can grab a beer, whether I can open my business, whether I can get my teeth cleaned. I mean, every aspect of life came to be managed and controlled practically overnight. As I'm describing, it sounds like a dystopian nightmare. I mean, it was. You say that some people don't, might not understand what I'm saying. I, yeah, I get that. I mean, partially, I think people have been so traumatized that they're, they're in denial, you know. Hmm. Uh, th- this struggle has been psychological, I think, for a lot of people. I mean, it certainly was for me. Um, I began to panic about March 8th when they shut down South by Southwest in, in Austin, Texas. They just shut down a conference of 250,000 people by an edict of the mayor. I thought, well, that doesn't happen in America. It's going to lead to 10 years of lawsuits. Well, I wrote an article about it. I said, this is, out, this is outrageous. This is unbelievable. You can't do that. I think I had one of the very few articles in print anywhere on the planet Earth to cry on what happened. There was almost silence.
1: Well. And so this is the thing, right? Because yeah. to this, you know, then and now, there's plenty of people that are saying, hey, we need to do this yeah. to protect to protect
0: humanity, mm-hmm. I mean, basically, right? Isn't mm-hmm. that the mantra? Mm-hmm. You, you know, I think it's uh, there's almost a religious presumption here. I mean, to some extent, maybe there's a, a way in which some of this connects with people's intuitions, but it's a medieval-style intuition. Stay away from people. Everybody is diseased. I can stay away from you. Of course you can't go to events together. Uh, the way to treat a pathogen is to get away from it. Um, <laughs> you know, Jan, early on in this whole thing, I got a call from a guy who was to head the um, Gates viruses for the Gates Foundation. He was very upset about the articles I was writing, you know, uh, because I was decrying these mitigation measures and the lockdowns and, you know, all the science behind this stuff and, and the effects that it has on human liberty and, and uh, the way it's demoralized everybody. and you know. I've been writing in outrage about this stuff for now for all this time. He called me up very upset. He said, you know, you're completely wrong. You know, these lockdowns can work and the, the masks are great and we have to abolish events and we had to close the schools and all these things. And I asked him one question. All right, let's say everybody avoids the pathogen, right? First of all, it's going to create a population of, with naive immune systems. And we know from history, the only thing more dangerous than governments and wars are naive immune systems. I mean, you're not going to avoid the path. In a modern life, you cannot avoid pathogens forever. That's why we have immune systems. Scale up and confront things. You avoid the pathogen, eventually you're going to decay your ability to fight infectious disease, and, and you're going to die. Uh, so I mentioned that to him. And, um, and I said, I have one, one, so first of all, how do you address that? I said, my second question is, what happens to the bug? What happens to SARS-CoV-2? Everybody avoids it. Where does it go? And he said, "Well, if we drive down the R-naught low enough, it'll eventually just sort of fade away." And I said, "Look, you know, I think you might be messing up cause and effect here. You know, that y- y- just because just because nobody's getting it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's still there." Um, so you didn't answer my question. He's like, "What happens to it?" You know, well, look, eventually, this might have been say, say April or May of. of 2020, He said, eventually, we'll get a vaccine that'll wipe it out, eradicate it. Hmm. That was his prediction. Well, we did get a vaccine. It is not capable of eradicating SARS-CoV-2. It is not doing what he told me it would do, or even what Fauci promised to do, or what Biden promised to do. It's not achieving that goal. So we're still left with the same problem. What are we going to do about the pathogen? In effect, what we've done as we've made the working classes bear the burden of herd immunity for, for the ruling classes, the state homeless Zoom. we threw, threw it on them. You, you essential workers, go and deliver the groceries to everybody. You, know, you you, bear the burden of infectious diseases, which is which is truly what, how societies in pre-modern times dealt with infectious diseases. They assigned the burden, of of pathogens, to the powerless. That's what it was like in biblical times, in the Deep South under slavery. Uh, Many societies have been constructed around this idea of the clean and the unclean. That's what we did. And it's grim, it's brutal, it's anti-modern, it's dangerous. We have to come to terms with it. I think we have to reject that idea. But in rejecting it, we have to have a new um, conception of a social, you know, what is the social contract we're going to have in the presence of infectious diseases? What is that social contract and what does that obligate us to do? That's a discussion we have to have and, and we're not anywhere near having that yet.
1: Well, and you know, that, that's a fascinating discussion to have indeed. Right. You know, I keep, one of the big things that kept coming up um, in both interviews that I'd been doing with some of your scholars and also you know, some of the, the, the speakers yesterday Was this idea of grossly disproportionate reaction to something that is a threat? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen polls of all sorts that there's, you know, this is stratified in different ways. But people's expectation of how they can be harmed by COVID is, you know, orders of magnitude greater than the reality.
0: Yeah, yeah. So whose fault is that, actually? I mean, why has why the, the messaging now that's been so screwed up since the very beginning? Like, why, why from the very beginning was I unable to find any coverage of the science? You know, the disparate impact of this disease, you know, the, the demographics of the threat, of uh, the huge difference between the threat to the old and, and the young. All you kept hearing is about just predictions of doom and an attempt to homogenize the population. Everybody's equally endangered, so therefore we have to have a solution for this that involves everybody. It was unscientific and uh, grotesque, but that's what the models said. If you look at the models, they always presume uh, equality of risk across all population groups. No pathogen in history has ever worked that way. Why do we have models that failed to distinguish this? You know, the CCD uh, had uh, plans in place since about 2006. So, CDC. Yeah. CDC. C- okay, okay. Yeah. No, no, that's right. Yeah, that's CDC. right. Yeah. Uh, they had plans in place since 2006. The ranges of response, and they had like c- color codes of uh, the severity of the pathogen. Is it mild? Is it medium? Is it is it is it really bad? Is it you know catastrophic? What these models never uh, accounted for is two things. One. When you're in the middle of something like this, you don't know the severity. You don't know until afterwards, right? It's not like SARS-CoV-2 comes with, you know, a label on it, I'm severe. Right? You don't know the severity until you actually experience the pathogen. So, so there's that uh, presumption of knowledge that was incorrect. But what's, what's more extraordinary about this color-coded thing that CDC had is it didn't distinguish between population groups. For some people, SARS-CoV-2 was really a threat, and we know who they are. Comorbidities uh, over seventy. The average age of death is just about the average age of uh, of the lifespan. So you know, much older people and people with broken immune systems. But for the young, it's never been uh, a real serious threat compared to many other threats. And we know this, and we've known this since February of of two thousand and twenty. But but that messaging was not out there. And even now, there's so much confusion. I uh, I, I have to blame uh, public health uh, officials for this, and I think a lot of the failure to communicate the reality of this pathogen is, was, was designed for this population wide imposition of lockdowns for everybody you know the, the model based approach in which we suddenly all became uh, lab rats you know, for their grand experiment in despotic rule it 's hard to imagine. You know, on February 27th, 2020, or I should say February 28th, there is a New York Times columnist named Daniel J. McNeil who ran an article on the op-ed page in the New York Times who said, to take on the coronavirus, we have to go medieval on it. And he says in this article, it's a very strange piece. He says, now, in the 20th century, we had traditional public health. So we tried to figure out how bad it was. We tried to protect the vulnerable. And otherwise, we tried to let life go on with as few disruptions as possible and then we let natural immunity uh, take it from there. Sounds reasonable. <laughs> the next paragraph he says, in the Middle Ages they locked everybody in their disease-ridden homes and blocked travel and uh, stopped gatherings and spread a population-wide fear. He said, that's the path we need to take this time. That's what he said. Crazy crazy person. I, I read this and I thought, how is it possible that the New York Times is publishing this kind of thing? You want to go medieval on a disease? You want to go medieval on a disease? Let's, let's see what happens. Well, we've seen what happened. I mean, the first thing that happens is we didn't get dentistry anymore. <laughs> the dentist office were closed for, 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 for six weeks, you know? Uh, so yeah, we went medieval on that. And then we divided the society by classes and, and, and casts. Uh, we imposed feudal-like uh, structures and, and despotic rules. Yeah, we banned gatherings. We did. Oh, we closed schools. Yeah, we didn't have public schools. We didn't have private schools. We didn't have anything. We didn't have religious freedom anymore. So yeah, we went medieval on it. What did it do to the disease? What was the result? Same thing. I mean, the, the virus took its own path. We know this now. We just need some frank discussion of the ghastly failure of these policies. You know, one
1: thing, as you were talking about the sort of the grand lab experiment, so to speak, um, I can't help but thinking about something I've discussed with a number of others: this this idea of a Platonic, noble lie, Mm.
0: kind
1: of, or the or the idea that, uh, you know, the people setting policy will use noble lies to shape behavior.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Um, And how much how much do you think that has played a role here, um, because, for example, you know, we know Dr. by Dr. Fauci's own admission, for example, that he said, "Well, you don't need to mask because he had, he, had a, yeah. he didn't want a rush on masks because he felt people needed masks. At least that's what he said." So that's an example of what you know he wanted to shape behavior by mm-hmm. telling a,
0: what. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. People always tell me this. So you ascribe too much to intellectual error, and not enough to just sheer malice, you know, but but I think they go together actually. <laughs> When, uh, when people make ghastly mistakes, they also want to say that that's exactly what they intended to do. I meant to do that, you know. Uh, I think that's what's going on here. So, uh, so they did a terrible thing. Uh, the shutting of the schools, the closing of the churches, the sending SWAT teams into rural Texas bars to arrest people for drinking beers, you know. They did all these terrible things. But, but once they invested so heavily in this population-wide experiment all over the world, now you have a problem, right? Because you've got a ruling class that's not gonna admit errors. So that's when the lies began. And the lies have not stopped. We live in a world of lies. Our mainstream newspaper had become cartoon-like. I used to respect these people. No more. You know, when you have headlines that say, the pandemic has caused a, uh, uh, a rash of suicides. The pandemic? The pandemic didn't cause suicides. It was the lockdowns that caused suicide. Let's be truthful. No, so our, our news media has just become corrupted uh, with lies, with very few exceptions. Your paper, one of them, you know. I mean, you're going to find more truth in Substack's accounts than you're going to find uh, in the Washington Post. So here's the thing. We've also discovered how propaganda works, mm. you know. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to study Soviet Union, you know, and what it must be like to live in a society where there's Pravda that uh, comes out daily to tell you what to believe in. How cynical that would make you, I never imagined I would live through that, where we have an ostensibly private uh, system of of media that operates under uh, uh, the principle of uh, freedom of press, and yet they would just become such a megaphone for for the powerful elites uh, and Why this happened is still a little bit confusing i sometimes take recourse to the to um, I don't want to sound like a Marxist, but there is a class element here, you know? Uh, uh, Technology has enabled people to stay home and get all their groceries delivered and click all their stuff from from, uh, online services and that sort of thing. And they're just not thinking about the common good anymore. You know, we have a ruling class uh, 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 elites in this country that truly are not thinking uh, about the general welfare of the whole population. Uh, the working classes, uh, minorities, the poor—they just—they weren't part of uh, the way anybody thought. Was, uh, we've gone so long now where nobody really cares. And how many times in this pandemic? Because I've been raging about this, you know, this thing for so long. And I have—I have friends calling me up and going, "I don't know why you're so upset. I—I've actually been really enjoyed uh, not going to work. I've been really comfortable. I mean, not just comfortable. I've even gotten." surprise little gifts from the federal government you know showing up in my bank account a thousand dollars every once while it comes in i don't know why you're so upset i've been fine wow you've been fine you've you've been just fine um you know after steam stops coming out of my ears i try to calm down and say you know to me what you just said sounds like privilege it sounds like privilege
1: you know, I, I keep thinking about this because I, you, you know, the, what they call the Zoom class, or the, basically the, the portion of the population, I think people generally say it's like a third or something yeah. like that, that, that can move anywhere and do their job essentially from anywhere. And in some cases, you know, many people aren't going back to work. They're quite happy, from what I've heard, to, to, to just do it from home. Yeah, it's, yeah. A good, it's a good arrangement. Except there's a whole the thing that they don't think about which is what you're talking about, is there's, there's a whole infrastructure of people
0: functioning to make that possible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, if you don't mind, I'll, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but one of the most shocking things is, of course, the New York Times. I'm sorry to constantly rage against the New York Times, but it's, it's my paper. I have a love-hate relationship with it, I always have, uh, but I've respected it in the past. But this time, at any point in the last 20 months, you can go to the New York Times and they'll have a, a, a map You know, where you can put in your zip code, you put in your zip code and they'll tell you what to do. So you put in your zip code and they go, you've got cases in your neighborhood, you should not travel, you should stay home and stay safe, and you should have your groceries delivered to you. Oh really? Who's going to deliver these groceries? Not readers of the New York Times. They're not even aware of who those people are, they know they're not their readers. There's a reason they didn't say, you should deliver groceries, they said you should have your groceries delivered to you. It's it's an, a ruling really class newspaper. They're speaking to a certain uh, strata of the population, and they, and it's so unaware of what they're saying. It's it's astonishing and appalling. So unaware of of what they're saying and to whom they're saying it and what the effects of that are going to be. Incredible. This that's the whole thing, you know, Jan. The the lockdowns, the mandates, and the and the despotic reaction to this to this, in the name of disease mitigation, it spawned a kind of cruelty in the population, a sort of immorality, a lack of concern, uh, uh, a a lack of any uh, consciousness of the terrible effects on the poor and uh, the working classes in this country, and the children. I mean, it's it's. And strange, it's like we've had our consciences just blotted out, or something. It's we've not we're not as good a people as we used to be, as a result of this. People are much meaner, much more hateful. There's a kind of a nihilism that's spreading in the culture. Uh, nothing matters anymore. Kind of attitude. Look what the government did to me. Why do I need to care about other people? You know, we we just lost that sort of. Um, sense of social obligation. It just seems to have been diminished. Uh, we're not the same people we were two years ago. I'm just remembering you mentioned, uh, you know, the
1: courts being one of these uh, sort of enablers uh, of all of this. But I, I, there is this new Fifth Circuit court decision to kind of stay these yeah. uh, corporate mandates right which mm-hmm. you know I, w- I was reading it and i was this is very this is very very good right i was like who wrote this this is really interesting right um,
0: it sounds but, it sounds uh, like i'm talking to you yeah. right it sounds yeah. like you could have written it or i could have written
1: it yeah but but no tell me um it seems like the courts are doing something yeah. here i mean
0: but i don't understand though, why it took so long i'm confused by that uh we're almost two years into this, and only now our court's going, yeah, I don't know, it seems like this measure is, is not consistent with our traditional presumptions concerning human liberty. You can't, you can't just order this thing. You can under any guise. You can't just rummage around the federal regulatory code and find some way to impose some universal vaccination thing. It, it, it doesn't work like that. is not there to make sure that everybody gets the jab this is what the court decision said. Yes, I, I agree with everything in there. Why did it take 21 months? What happened? Why weren't these stays in place uh, from, from March, I would say, 8th, but certainly the 12th, absolutely since March 16th, 2020, the court should have been all over that. Like what? what, what is broken? about our system, that it didn't happen, that these, were, these things were allowed to happen to us. Whatever that is, it needs to be fixed.
1: The most shocking thing to me is how apparently some very significant portion of the population is suggestible to mass media. Is, is, it can be influenced by mass media um, and change their mind overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and and believe it. I mean, apparently, right? I, I would. I, I just I wasn't aware that such a
0: thing existed or was possible. Um, I wasn't either. It is. It is I think it's, it comes. comes down to your friends and my friends, perhaps, are a little more skeptical. a little bit a little incredulity towards mainstream media. Uh, but I too had been unaware of how um, people are just tied to the television sets all the time and and believing what they're saying. Or maybe they don't believe it. But I think there must be some truth to it or else why does everybody keep saying this, but that includes the judges
1: that includes the people writing these opinions that includes everybody and I actually know who it doesn't include. It includes it doesn't include the people who have to get their hands dirty through it all like the people doing the deliveries like the police like the fire department, basically, I mean,
0: the working class I would right? that's right. So that that's interesting. It is interesting. And and look what we're doing to them now. I mean, We put them on the front lines to face the pathogen. Exposure all around. Probably required natural immunity. Most everybody in those class structures who've been out and about for 20 months while the rest of us have been sitting around in pajamas and house shoes and Zooming. Um, and then, at the end of the day, it's like we've got a vaccine, and we're telling them to take it, even though they have natural immunities. So we're punishing them. And if they don't want to take a jab, we're firing them for the jobs. I mean, can you imagine? We're, it's, it's, it's an outrage what we're doing. The nurses who treated coronavirus patients for from, from months exposing themselves to this stuff, they know how natural immunity works. They got exposure. Uh, they faced it uh, out of a sense of obligation, professional obligation. Professional, they thought they were doing the right thing. We stood in our apartment windows and cheered them as they came home from work. Yay, thanks for saving us. 20 months later, you're fired. Get the jab, or you're gonna lose your job. Oh, the stories are so sad. My inbox is just flooded all day long with, with uh, public sector workers, uh, people working in you know, the passport offices, or nurses, or doctors, academics, firemen, uh, policemen, uh, people all over the country who are, are facing losing their jobs, you know? And for a while, they think, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get the thing. I'm gonna get the vaccine even though they know they have natural immunities, and tested positive for antibodies, or they remember being sick, they assume it's coronavirus, uh, uh, they, they took the traditional method, get exposure, get immunity, move on with your life. And now they've been told to, uh, to uh, register on this database, cough up your social security number, give it over to the state health department, we're gonna track your um, vaccinations. And when the time comes, you're gonna get a booster, then when the time comes, we're going to get another booster. And from now on, you're going to be on a, a vaccine subscription plan. And they don't want to do it. And I get it. I mean, they, they like to imagine that their body is their own. And they want, to, they want control over that. They don't know what's in the shot. And they don't believe they need it. And yet we're threatening them. It's amazing. Amazing what we've, what we've done. And it's, still, it's just mystifying to me. The sheer brutality of this, and by the way, conspiracy theories are. I mean, we live in a time of great conspiracy theory. Everybody has a theory as, as to why this is happening. I don't have the answers. I wished I did. Yes, big farms involved. Uh, um, yeah, governments always looking for more power. All this is true, but still, there's something else going on. I think, and I think it all comes down to some sort of. I think it's a cultural problem, uh, a lack of appreciation of uh, of human liberty, and human autonomy, and. Uh, Indi- individualism, the rights, the rights of individuals, these, these, these principles that two years ago I thought everybody accepted, whether you're on the left or the right or the middle or whatever. We basically believed in, <laughs> in human rights, I thought, and the aspirations of everybody to be able to live with opportunity and dignity. Right? That, that was what we thought we believed in until suddenly we didn't. So we're going to have to recapture that. I don't know what that looks like really. But, but we have to do it. It's well, this is, this is the task of, of yeah. you know, the, the, the people you're
1: assembling around yeah. Brownstone, yeah, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah.
0: And the, the, you know, I want to say something, too, about this, because I know, I know what's going to happen here, because I have a long history of writing, uh, you know, I have like 11 books or something, five languages, and most of it is of a libertarian, techno-utopian sort of thing. I'm a happy person, a happy libertarian, you know, uh, dabbling in anarchist theory and so on. Uh, writing, celebrating technology. This this has been my intellectual legacy, and this is who I always was until March 2020 when I had to change. But I know what's going to happen at Brownstone because they're going to come after me at some point. They're going to come after us. Uh, They're going to come after our scientists. And the claim is that because we live in a highly politicized environment, everything has to be political or it doesn't mean anything, Uh, Brownstone will attempt to be characterized as... A, oh, God forbid, right-wing libertarian organization, right? Well, I'm, I'm going to say in this interview right, that that is not true. Uh, first of all, I personally completely reject uh, the the phrase right-wing because I, I wrote an entire book attacking the history of, of right-wing ideology uh, from early nineteenth century up through World War II. So I. I I'm on record as opposing rightist ty- types of collectivism. Uh, so there's that. Uh, second thing is my personal views really have, have nothing to do with the job of a brownstone. I, yes, I, I'm of a libertarian mindset. I, I believe uh, in liberalism as a principle of life, um, but that doesn't have to be political. It doesn't have to be left. It doesn't have to be right. Um, uh, I, I work every day with Martin Kulldorf, one of the world's most famous, you know, st- uh, epidemiologists and statisticians um, and we're very good friends to this day. I don't really know his politics. <laughs> it's funny and we don't talk about that not because it's banned, it's because it's not very interesting. It's just boring, you know. But There's a thousand subjects I'd rather talk about uh, aside from political ideology and I have other writers like Tom Harrington who he says things to me and I'm thinking that sounds a little like um, uh, uh, <laughs> some version of Marxism. You know, I don't know how else to put it. I think he thinks of himself as, as like a, a, an old left guy. But I love his analytics and his passion for human liberty and human rights is just overwhelming. He writes for Brownstone all the time. So I've got a lot of writers from all different points of view. Uh, my standard is, are you illuminating uh, our present reality are you uh, contributing to a greater understanding of what's happened to us, this problem of the social contract as it relates to infectious diseases? And are you, giving, are you lighting a, a sort of a, a lamp you know, that gives us a, a, a future to recapture what I thought everybody believed in two years ago? And again, this is the very basic stuff about rights and liberties. Like that, that's what we need to get back. Uh, it's not the particulars of any particular sort of modular, uh, Cartesian-style political ideological system. Uh, We'll leave that to later. Right now, we just need to remember what built modernity, what made us great, what made us prosperous, what made us feel like dignified individuals, what brought us peace. What are the conditions under which I find value in you and you find value in me, and we have an incentive to protect each other's rights? Respect. And protect, and the kind of community that flows out of that presumption of human dignity—that's what we have to recapture. We have to remember and understand, and not ever play games with that again. We can't ever regard these essential postulates of life as optional or something that can be taken away from us. Based on uh, Fauci's uh, latest theory of what we should what we should do in a, in a German and it's not just about infectious These any crisis like we need to get back to this foundational understanding of who we are as a community and what we want to be look like as a society the things that work uh, the things that are right the things that are true we have to rediscover them and we need to remember and re-understand the last 21 months as a catastrophe we need to admit it it was wrong it didn't work, it was immoral, and it spread a tremendous uh, carnage all over the world, poverty, suffering everywhere. We need to admit that that's true and figure out a, a path forward that recaptures the things that have worked in the past. And those things are human rights, an aspiration of equality, and a social system in which we find dignity in each other. Uh, not. Just disease, but dignity. That's I think that's where we need to go, and it's going to be a long struggle, but we have to get there.
1: Well, I look forward to participating in how you and the Brownstone Institute, you know, basically develop this uh, this whole vision. And so, Jeffrey Tucker, it's such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. <laughs>